on this episode, How to Collect Your Wedding Planner's Fee. Hello, I'm Debbie Quain. Thank you for joining me. You're tuned in to another episode of Weddings for a Living. This is an online talk show for new and aspiring wedding planners. My goal is to help you figure out how to make planning weddings a thing, how to plan weddings for a living. For archived episodes of this show and articles and a wedding planners glossary, please visit weddingsforaliving.com weddingsforaliving.com. I'm so glad that you're here. A huge thank you for so many of you who have left comments and feedback, specifically Kathy, Peggy, Olga, Angela. I really love hearing from you because even though I'm used to speaking to myself, I love getting feedback because I know that someone's tuning in. And if you know of someone who's thinking about or is even already in the business and doesn't know about Weddings for a Living, please, please, Share the information. There's a whole lot of knowledge out there. And I always learn too when I hear from you. So today, collecting your wedding plan is fee. This is not a show about pricing. This is about what to do when you have a client. Someone signed the contract. Yay, you've been hired. How do you collect your money? How do you get paid? And I specifically want to go over the different methods that are out there. But before we do that, let's get into the basics here. One of the best practices for you as an entrepreneur, whether you're doing the wedding planning thing or something else, is to set up a business bank account. This is a good way to keep your funds separate. And that's really that really should ultimately be your goal. And your business bank account, the way it's set up, depends on the way you've structured your business. You may be a sole proprietor or you may be a corporation or set up as a limited liability. And there are different nuances for setting up your bank account based on your decision there. So if you're operating your business under your own name and your customers are writing checks, for example, you can ask your customers to make their checks payable directly to you and deposit them into your personal checking or savings account. But that really is not the best practice. However, if you have incorporated your business and selected a corporate name, you must first set up a business checking account so that you can deposit checks made out to your company. So that's there's no if, ands, or buts. If you are set up as a corporation, you need a business bank account. But again, even if you are a sole proprietor, my suggestion is for you to go forward, move forward with a business bank account, business checking account. To open a sole proprietorship account, checking account, the bank is going to need, and and I'm sorry, I should have said this before. A lot of what I'm going to discuss today applies to running a business here in the United States. Not everything, but some of the specifics. So, that's, I just want to put that out there. But still, I think even if you are based outside of America, you can still learn from some of the information I'm going to share with you. So please don't, don't leave, not just yet. So here in the U.S., to open a sole proprietorship bank account, you'll need your social security number or a business tax ID. And I'll explain what that is in a minute. And a document that shows both your business name, your business's name, and your name, if the two are different, if your company name is not your your personal name. To open a, a, a checking account, a business account for any other type of business, you must provide the business tax ID number 
or what's known as an EIN, Employer Identification Number, and any other organizing documents. If you are set up as an LLC, for example, or you have shareholders, then you'll need to present documents for proof of that type of business. Just so you know, you don't need employees to get an EIN, Employer Identification Number. Instead, think of it as a social security number for your business. It's a number that identifies your business instead of you, the person. There's no fee to get one, and you can get one online from the IRS website in a matter of minutes. So for those reasons, why not? And even if your business is set up as a sole proprietor, if you're in the U.S., you get the EIN, for, get an EIN for your company. That would be your suggestion. My company is set up as an LLC, a limited, li- limited liability company. But prior to that, I was a sole proprietor and I had an EIN as a sole proprietor. I had to change that number once the business was set up as an LLC. But again, easy to do, free to do. And as with many things, you can do that online. If you are a sole proprietor or even a partnership for that matter, and you choose to do business under another name, this is known as a DBA which stands for doing business as, you will have to register your fictitious name with your city, county, or state before your bank will let you open a business account up in that name, in that company name. And this process varies depending on where you are. The whole concept, the whole reason you need a fictitious name or setting up doing business is that doing business as, this is the way for the general public to know Who's legally behind this this name, this company name? Who is the person behind this company? So the process, again, as I said, varies depending on where you are. And it pretty much involves checking a database. And that's so that you that's to make sure that no one else in your state, that's the key part there, your state is operating under that name. So assuming you're the only person who has decided to name your company amazing parties, weddings, kinsays, mitzvahs, and more. (laughs) You'll register your made-up name, that name, and you'll pay a registration fee. And then there's going to be some sort of public notice that has to be placed usually in a newspaper, a local paper, so that everybody knows that amazing parties, weddings, kinsays, mitzvahs, and more, the person behind that is Jane Doe, or whatever your name happens to be, if you're the person with that business name. Once that is registered, you're doing business as or your fictitious name or your DBA, all the same thing. You're going to have to renew that. That doesn't last forever, by the way. I know in this area, I think it's five years, maybe three. It's an odd number. And then you have to go in and register the name again. Once you do that, be prepared to be bombarded with all types of <laughs> junk mail Um, pertaining to your business, accounting services, tax services, business support, and all manner of bright and shiny objects for business owners. That comes with the territory because you've just launched a business, or at least you've launched your business, your fictitious business name. And there are companies out there that want to do business with you. The cost of filing a fictitious name notice ranges from $10 in some states all the way up to $100. In most states, If you're a corporation, you don't have to file a fictitious name unless the corporation is doing business under a name other than their own. So if your corporation is XYZ LLC and then you set up amazing parties, weddings, kinsays, mitzvahs and more 
as a company within that corporation, then yes, you'll need to file a fictitious name statement. But if you're operating as XYZ LLC, and that's your business name, then you won't need to do the fictitious name because you've already done that when you're setting up the corporation. Okay, I hope that makes sense. Let's talk about payment options. So your options for receiving payment from your clients, your customers for your wedding planning services are pretty much either cash, check, credit card, or maybe even barter. So barter is where you're exchanging a service or one good for another. So for example, if you say need a website and you're a wedding planner and I'm a website designer and my website services go for $1,100, then maybe you and you have a service that I need, I'm getting married, then maybe the, the agreement is that I will exchange, I'll create a website for you and in turn you will provide day of wedding services if that's what your fee is. So that's what I mean by barter. The IRS, the Internal Revenue Service here in America, isn't a fan of bartering, but that is a, a form of payment. I want, I'm not going to focus on that today, but just wanted to put that out there. Really what I want to focus on, on, focus on are the, the first three, cash, check, or credit card. So cash is self-explanatory. Some, you have a service, a product, and someone pays you in cash. Just be sure if this is a method of payment that you accept to provide your customer with a receipt. There needs to be a paper trail to cover you and to cover your customer. But of course, cash increases the likelihood of, of theft. Cash means that you're required to have change on hand. If someone, your services are 350 and someone provides you with four $100 bills, then you've got to provide change. There's always the chance that you might be accepting counterfeit bills, unbeknownst to you and possibly unbeknownst to your customer too. And also with cash, the idea is the cash needs to get into your bank account, that bank account that we just talked about. You're going to need to take make cash deposits. So you've got to take the cash and then deposit it in the bank. And whenever you're handling cash in public, whether you're meeting with clients, let's say at a meeting, face-to-face -face meeting, and they decide to, to decide to do business with you and they hand over cash, you've got to be careful. That comes with the territory. Of course, you also have the option to not accept cash at all and only accept checks and or credit and debit cards. That's an option. And this is not as crazy as it sounds. If you've, uh, some, some airlines, if you're on, um, when you're flying and you want to purchase, because uh, they don't give you food now, do they? <laughs> For the most part, unless you're fly flying internationally. But if you want to purchase, I don't know, a glass of wine or just a, a sandwich, a lot of times the only form of payment that's accepted on that that airline during that flight is a credit card. So it's not completely unheard of. Just know that anytime you limit a form of payment, and in this instance, cash, you're, you may be limiting your customer base, although that's changing. I mean, I, for one, very rarely have cash and sometimes get stuck when I arrive someplace to pay for a service or goods and then realize they only accept cash. I, I, I get stuck with that. So that's the, the cash option. The next option that you have for payment for your wedding planning services um, are checks. And you need a business checking account to accept checks if they're payable to your business name. So if you're, when we just talked about the fictitious business name, the fictitious name or doing business as, and that's where this comes into play. Checks that are written to your business should include your business name in the pay to order of field, right? 
If you are a sole proprietor, though, you are the only person who can cash the check. Just know that. And usually, I don't know if this is a rule, though, but usually if a check is made out to a business, that check needs to be deposited as opposed to cashed. That's been my experience. Again, I'm not sure if that's a rule, a hard and fast rule. If you are a sole proprietor, you want to open a checking account in your name and then attach a doing business as to the account. So your name, Jane Doe, and then your business name, DBA, and then your business name. This way, if a customer writes out the check to you or to your business, you can cash or deposit it either way into your business account. Okay, so that's if you're a sole proprietor. But, you know, with a check, and, and of course, if you've got a limited liability corporation or you're, a different, you're incorporated, then the check can only be made payable to the business and needs to go into the respective checking business checking account. There is a level of risk that comes with accepting check payments, as you may well be aware. Insufficient funds. And, and the way this works, just to make it crystal clear, so when someone writes you a check, they're basically authorizing their bank to withdraw the funds from that account and then send them to your bank. So what happens sometimes is that the person writes a check and then there's a bit of a delay because the check has to make it to their bank and then the check gets to their bank and then the bank, their bank says, oh, you don't have enough money. We can't withdraw this amount of money. So what happens is the check comes back to you. That your customer's bank sends the check back to your bank and says insufficient funds. That's what's known as a bounce check. You don't have any money. Your customer has, has services or good, goods, but you don't have any money. Another risk with accepting checks um, are stop payments. And stop payment means that customer, client, pay, writes you a check either for your goods or services. And then once he or she has left has left your business, left walk is away from you. They go home or they wherever and they pick up the phone or go to their bank and say, that check that I wrote to that company, don't pay it. Don't pay it. Doesn't mean they don't have the funds necessarily, but for whatever reason, they issue a stop payment. Again, they have your goods or services and you have no money. So these situations will affect your business because you, you're not getting the money that you are due. And this is why some businesses choose not to accept checks. It's because of that risk. Some of your customers, though, may not have credit or debit cards or may choose not to use them, especially, you know, depending on the economy and what's going on. If your target market for your wedding business consists of people who prefer to pay by check, you will definitely lose business if you have a company policy against accepting checks. I know why you may choose not to, but just keep that in mind. Now, if your target base, if your target customer uses predominantly credit cards, debit cards, then you have no worries there. But you, you want to make sure you find that out first or think that through. Be sure, for me, my suggestion is just to be sure to allow check payments to clear before your client's wedding day or before providing a significant level of service or a big product. So as I mentioned, when someone writes a check, check has to go to their bank. Their bank determines, oh, yep, they've got the money. And then you get the money in your account. That takes a few days. Or they write the check, check gets to their, their, their bank says, nope, you don't have enough money. And they send it back. You want to in, allow enough time for that process 
to, to take place. So for me personally, I accept my final payment for my wedding planning services, the final payment, 10 days before the wedding date. 10 days. That's enough time for that check to clear. And I mentioned this in my wedding planner's contract and again in my policies and procedures form. If you haven't experienced it, you will. A client decides not to pay you. The worst part is when a client decides not to pay you and you've already done everything that you said that you would do or given them the product that they asked that they, they supposedly paid for. It's a little more difficult with a product. You know, I'm not going to give you this until your check clears, although technically you could do that. But really what I'm referring to, since this is all about planning weddings for a living, is for your services. Don't wait until the day of the wedding or the day before the wedding to get payment. For me, whether it's check or credit card, it's 10 days before the wedding day. That's when I want my final payment. But th there is a way to sort of lower that risk for accepting checks. And it's, it's what I'm referring to, it's what's known as electronic funds transfer or EFT. And you may be familiar with this if you've ever gone to a store and, and made a payment with a check. What will happen is that you, the business owner, you would have a special electronic check machine that allows you to slide the check through a check scanner. And this device is usually attached to your credit card terminal if you have if you're accepting credit cards. So what happens is the machine scans the check and requests it requests the transaction amount that you enter in. And then it may ask for you to enter driver's license information for, for your customer, or your client or an ID number of the customer. And then what happens is the machine then checks the customer's bank account to ensure that the funds are available and then the, the and then transfers the funds to your account. And that's exactly what happens on a regular day when someone writes a, a check and you deposit it in your bank account and so forth. But with EFT, electronic funds transfer, it cuts down on that time. And if you've ever been to a store, written a check maybe today, this evening, by the next day, those funds may have been withdrawn from your account. And that's because of the electronic funds transfer. So that is an option for you to accept checks. So that would take some research on your part. And I'm sure there are costs associated with that. But if that, that's one way to, to lower the risk. So let's talk a bit about credit cards. If your customers are like mine, they'll want to pay with credit cards. To accept credit cards, you need three things. One, a credit card merchant account. Two, a bank account. And three, a way to process payments. So the merchant account. A merchant account is basically a bank account, not your typical bank account, but it's an, it's an account that lets you process cards. So your customers can then pay you with either their Visa, MasterCard, American Express, perhaps Discover, and other cards. And the funds from those credit cards are then transferred into your business checking account. That's the second part that I said you need. And the third part, which is the way to process the cards, you'll need a terminal to swipe the card. So the stripe on the back of the credit card is how all that information is transmitted through the, through the, through the cloud or wherever it goes. So as you might expect, you'll, you'll pay fees for this convenient method of payment. And it is convenient. So there are some typical merchant account fees. Startup fee. As the name suggests, this is the fee you pay just to get the, the darn thing going. 
statement fees. And this is some this is a fee that you is usually monthly. Each time a statement is generated, there's a fee associated with that per transaction fees. And as the name suggests, each time the credit card is processed, there's a fee attached to that. And oftentimes there are other monthly fees. Um, PCI compliance, which is another fee that uh, associated if you are processing credit cards through your website, which is a slightly, which is still a merchant account, but uh, an additional step there. And then for each transaction, each time a customer pays you with a credit card, a discount rate will be applied. Now, this discount, I'm doing discount with air quotes, isn't what you would imagine a typical discount to be because instead of it saving you money, (laughs) it's going to reduce the amount of money that you receive in the form of a percentage. So I guess it is a discount, but it's not favorable to you. The percentage that you are charged each transaction, that's what's going to happen. So this amount varies anywhere from 1.5% to all the way up to 3%. And that amount, that rate, that discount rate is affected by things like your credit, your personal credit, your business history, if there is history. And all, another area that affects that discount rate is the, the degree of risk and whether you swipe the customer's card. So for the most part, you should be swiping your, your, your customer's credit card. You'll have it in hand. But let's say your, your customer, you're doing business over the phone. Your customer calls in to make their second of three payments over the phone. Then instead, you won't have the card to swipe it in. You'll have to type the number in. Well, that usually has a higher discount rate attached, which means you get slightly less money. Um, credit card vo- sales volume. How much money, how much business are you doing each month? When you apply for your merchant account, you will be asked, I mean, how many, what's the dollar amount? How many, how much do you think you'll be doing in sales each month? Is it 500 a month? Is it 5,000? And based on your sales volume will determine the rate. Usually the more business you do, the lower rate that applies. So as I mentioned, you'll also need a device that allows you to swipe your customer's credit card. And there may also be a monthly fee associated with that piece of equipment too, or you can even own the equipment outright. These are the things that are required for a merchant account. And you, it, it is an application process. Again, tied in with your credit and all those things affect the outcome, the rates you pay and how much it costs. But in the past few years, thank goodness, a few options have broken the mold of traditional merchant accounts. And it just makes it so much easier for just about anyone to accept credit cards as payment. And I'm referring to what I'm going to refer to. I'm going to describe these as non-traditional merchant accounts, although I'm not sure if technically they are merchant accounts. You may be familiar with the company Square. It's often referred to as Square Up, which is the domain name that's used by the company. So this is a relatively new company. They, they launched in 2009. And what Square does, it provides a square-shaped credit card reader, makes sense, that plugs into the headphone jack of your phone or tablet. And this enables you to swipe your customer's credit card. So this replaces, this is the equipment that the, the terminal that a traditional merchant uh, merchant account would, would require you to have. The reader is connected to an app to enter details of the transaction. And then once the purchase is approved, you receive the funds in your designated bank account in a couple of days. And, and I don't think I said that clearly with the traditional merchant account. You swipe the credit card and then usually in the next business day, those funds minus the discount rate are in your bank account. 
Same thing with Square. Sounds like a merchant account, right? Well, the difference here is that once you pay for the reader, or in some instances, you don't pay for the reader at all because you, there is an option to have a free reader or pay for one, which I think as of this recording is about $50. Outside of the discount rate, outside of the cost that may be associated with your reader and the discount rate, which at the time of this recording for Square is 2.75%. So it is a little higher than most traditional merchant accounts. But and, and that percentage is deducted for each transaction. But there are no other merchant account fees, no monthly fees, no startup fee, no statement fee. So although you're paying a slightly higher rate, discount rate, you've eliminated many of the other fees associated. And I mean, to give you an idea, like for a merchant account, a startup fee may be as much as $50, maybe higher than that, $99. With Square, that doesn't exist. So just to give you, so that you understand, you know, the, the discount rate and how that works. I don't, want to, I don't want to make any assumptions here. So let's say you have a product or a service that's $100 and you swipe the, you use Square to process that credit card. Well, at the rate of 2.75%, you will wind up with $97.25 in your account for that transaction. You don't get the full hundred. The rest, Square keeps the 2.75% and the rest you have. Not a bad deal. And just to add, I mentioned that Square works within the headphone jack of your tablet or, or phone. As of this recording, the iPhone 7, which has been released, doesn't have a headphone jack. Ooh, so what do we do there? Well, there is a workaround in place. And Square says that if you use the, there's a, with each of the iPhone 7s, there's a lightning to the 3.5 millimeter headphone jack adapter. And using that, you're able to process the card. And I also mentioned that, you know, you can either get a free reader or there's a reader of $50. The, the difference is that the days of just swiping the card are changing as of this recording, where the chip on the credit card needs to be inserted. And this is to eliminate fraud. And that reader, I think it's referred to as an EMV chip reader, is about $50. The law, I believe, says that if you are accepting credit cards by swiping them and that credit card actually has a chip that should be inserted and you choose to swipe the card and not read the chip on the card, if there is fraud associated with that transaction, the responsibility lies with you, the business owner. Whereas in the past, the credit card company would assume all responsibility or liability. That's not the case. So if your customers are presenting you with a credit card that has the chip, and you are not using a chip reader and you are swiping the card the old-fashioned way, if there is a problem with fraud, it's on you. Okay? I hope that makes sense. And Square also offers some other features now that there's a Square register, Square online store, and more. So, you know, beyond the ease of entry and the other great benefit with a service like Square, it means that you can accept your credit cards on the go. With a traditional merchant account, the reader, that the, the equipment that you, is used to swipe the card is usually something that's stationary and needs to stay put in your office or in your store. But with a service like Square, because it works with your mobile device, your tablet, you can take it with you. So when you're meeting with clients and you're talking with them and they decide to do business, assuming the contract is ready to go, you can also take the payment on the spot. So that really covers the, the, the credit card area, kind of, but not completely. There is another option too, and that is online payments. So I said 
cash, check, credit card. But online payments kind of cover credit cards too. It's just another way to accept credit cards. And PayPal is an internet-based service. I think the largest internet-based online payment service that allows you to collect payments from anyone with an email address. That's the only criteria for someone to pay you via PayPal is that they have an email address. And that probably qualifies a lot of people. And just like credit card companies, PayPal deducts a small fee for every transaction. And your customer, for the most part, would need to have their own PayPal account. But even if they don't, once they sign up to make a payment with you via PayPal, PayPal, PayPal will then actually create account an account for them. But even that's not always a requirement because there is a way to accept payments with credit cards without a PayPal account. But I don't want to go into all of that. Just know that the email is the only criteria for your customers to use PayPal. And with PayPal, the customer can pay either based on a credit card or if they have a checking account that is linked to their PayPal account. So for many people that maybe choose not to or for whatever reason don't have a credit card, if they have a checking account and an email address, they can pay you via PayPal, which is almost the same manner as you accepting a credit card payment. Very convenient. What you would need to do with PayPal is to add a PayPal buy now button to your website and then your customer can click on the button and pay with their PayPal account. But uh, not to be outdone, PayPal also offers a credit card reader. Theirs is in the shape of a triangle (laughs) to make sure that there's no confusion with Square. And it's a similar business model to Square. The PayPal Rita, I think it's called PayPal Here, H-E-R-E, is free. Just like Square, PayPal also offers an advanced reader that will allow you to read the chip to insert the card so the chip can be read. I believe as of this recording, that's about $150 for that reader. So significantly more. But I think that there's some sort of rebate rebate that you can get. If I, I think it's a hundred dollar rebate if you once you've done three thousand dollars worth of sales or something, words to that effect. But Square charges two point seven five percent. I believe as of right now PayPal chart PayPal here, their Rita charges two point seven percent. Another online payment option is Stripe. And Stripe is my favorite. It's another way to accept payments online. So this means that some you can have a payment page within your website instead of just having the PayPal button and the payments, it's almost like the transaction is happening on your website because with PayPal, usually the customer is taken to the PayPal site, they make their payment and then they're brought back to your website. But with Stripe, you can now accept payments on your website seamlessly. There are no monthly fees, just their discount rate. And it's linked, of course, to your designated bank account. And I don't think I said it, but with PayPal, same thing. It's linked to your business bank account. So that's the starting point. You've got to have this bank account so you can receive all of your money. And with Stripe, the funds appear in your account in about two business days. I th- initially, when you start, there's a, a seven-day wait. I think it's sort of like your, your first transaction is seven days. But then once that goes through successfully, it's two business days for the turnaround. If you are using a service like Stripe, you are required to have an SSL. It's a secure, That's when you see the website. It's a secured site. That's when you see the HTTPS as opposed to just HTTP so that 
you can process cards. But just know that with Stripe and with PayPal, your customer's credit card information is not being saved on your server, on your computer. Those companies are storing the credit card information on their site. You don't have to worry about what's known as PCI compliance. And I alluded to that when we talked about merchant accounts. If you have a traditional merchant account, there are some other rules that you have to adhere to to make sure that your client's information is protected. So this is another vote for me as far as I'm concerned for using a service like Stripe because even though I am required to have the SSL certificate, which means that my site is secure, HTTPS, it's not actually storing the card information. The HTTPS, the secure site, means as it's transmitting the credit card information, it cannot be intercepted. It's sort of buried with some sort of coding on there. So it cannot be read if someone was trying to intercept the transaction. The last point I want to make about credit card payments, and I'm, I'm focusing on that because that, in my experience, is the way that most of my transactions are happening. I'm not sure if that's the situation for you. But I've seen this, and it's a huge pet peeve of mine. And what I'm referring to are credit card surcharges. And this is where a business owner charges a customer more for using a credit card. It's just not customer-friendly for you to first attract a client to your your store or your, your website to do business and then to penalize them for using a credit card that you accept. It, it just I, I, that blows my mind and it really ticks me off. And just so that you know, here in the U.S., surcharges are also illegal in 10 states for credit cards. As of this recording, California, Colorado, Connecticut, Florida, Kansas, Maine, Massachusetts, New York, Oklahoma, and Texas. If you're adding a surcharge or convenience fee for your customers in those, and, you, and your business operating in those states, beware. And just so that you know, if you haven't already figured out from my, <laughs> my feelings... Your customers are really unhappy about that and are probably pretty peed off because you should be eating that cost. That's the cost of doing business. Paying by credit card is not a convenience for the customer. It's a convenience for you because the more ways that you are willing to accept payment, the easier it is for you to make more profits. Don't charge your clients and customers for the privilege of using a credit card. Here's what I suggest instead because I wouldn't knock it and not have a solution for you. Come on, you know better than that. My solution is one of two things. Offer a discount instead. Instead of charging your customers for using their credit card, offer a discount instead. Uh, what do you mean, Debbie? So I know you've seen this, and it's usually at a gas station where the cash prices are lower than the credit prices. Well, why not do the same thing for your wedding business? Charge your customers less if they choose to pay you via cash. And in some places, for some people, cash means check. Really, what they're saying is instead of using your credit card, you use another form of payment. So charge less for that. But my, my, what I think is a better solution, instead of you charging your customers for the credit card usage, just raise your prices across the board. Simply assume that each and every customer will pay you with a credit card and then increase your prices based on that assumption. 
a solid one and a half to two percent will do the trick. Increase your prices by that much if you're accepting credit cards right now and are charging your customers. Just raise your prices prices across the board approximately two percent. And that's going to soften the blow for you for the processing fee that the credit card company is charging you. It, it just it, it just doesn't sit well to advertise your prices $500 and then someone shows up with a credit card. Uh, using a credit card, it's going to be more than that. Instead of adding more to cover your fee of, of the processing of the credit card, just raise the prices for everyone. That makes more sense. That makes more sense because even if your customers aren't saying it, they're peed off about it. So, so don't do that. Think about it. There are lots of costs that we have associated with doing business. Our internet access, our, the fee that we pay for internet access, our rent, our association membership fees. We don't, I mean, these are fees that we have to absorb. It's part of overhead. And your credit card processing fees, whether you're using a service like Square or Stripe or a traditional merchant account or PayPal, those fees are the cost of doing business. So incorporate that those those expenses into your fees. Okay. So come up with your method of payment that you will accept for your wedding business now. And just know that based on where your wedding business is based, you may or may not be able to accept Square or Stripe for payment. So do your research. It's totally up to you which payment options you'll accept. And you know, just be sure to pay attention to your target clients. What are their preferred methods of payment? And then try to tailor what it is that you're accepting to that. Whatever you do, just, you know, do not wait until you have a client and then try to figure it all out. Remember, you want to open a separate business checking account. Yes, even if you're a sole proprietor. Stay away from mixing your personal funds with your business funds because come tax time, which is another show topic, you'll be so happy that you did. And that's the information I wanted to share with you today for how to collect the fees for your wedding planning business. What are you accepting? Checks? Are you accepting credit cards? Are you hesitant to accept credit cards? I know when I began my wedding planning business, I didn't want to accept credit cards because I was concerned about things like chargebacks. And a chargeback is a situation where a customer decides to get in contact with a credit card company. It's almost like a stop payment of sorts, like with a check. Instead of coming to you, or maybe they come to you and you refuse, but they go to the credit card company and say, we've paid Debbie with our credit card, but she didn't do X, Y, Z. Take it off of our statement. And usually at that point, the credit card company will investigate. But a lot of times they'll take that money, they'll pull that money back while they figure out what's going on. And that's what's known as a chargeback. So that's, I don't want to go too in-depth with regard to all the nuances of accepting credit cards. But that was something that I kept at the back of my mind. And for that reason, I didn't accept credit cards. But it's changed a lot. As of today, I mean, for most part, most of us are walking around with a card, whether it's a debit or credit card in our wallet. So you should be ready to accept that as a form of payment from your clients. For the show notes for today's episode, please visit weddingsforliving.com slash 398 weddingsforliving.com slash 398. That's the episode number for today. If you have any questions, please feel free to post your comments and questions, of course, on that page, weddingsforliving.com slash 398. Also, you can leave me a voicemail message on the talk back line, 24 hours a day. The talk back line is area code 202-681-2126. 202-681-2126. Two, one, two, six. 
Just remember that Weddings for a Living is also on iTunes. Please feel free to subscribe to the show there. And I'd love to hear from you on iTunes. Feel free to leave a review. I'd love to know what your experience has been from listening to the show. I'm Debbie Quain. That's all I've got for you this time around. As always, lots of love and success. I'll talk to you soon.